Welcome to my coaching podcast, Dancing in the Moment, where I chat to people from the world of coaching and psychology about their story, their approach, and their insights about the coaching profession. They're all people I like, respect, and admire for the way they show up in the world. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, um, welcome to the Dancing in the Moment podcast. And today I'm thrilled to be here with Julie Stokes. Um, Julie is one of the people I've decided to interview in this podcast series because I've sought out people who I respect, admire, and whom I think have wisdom to share with people listening to this podcast, people interested in coaching, psychology, and people development in general. So Julie, um, to do the Desert Island Discs part of this, if I'm allowed to say that, um, I, I, I know you, but I, I checked out your biography earlier today, and I know you're a, a clinical psychologist, a health psychologist, you have a particular interest in um, palliative care, loss, grief work, um, so much so that you founded the Winston's Wish Charity for bereaved children. Um, and for that work, I think you received an OBE. Mm-hmm. Congratulations, wonderful achievement. Uh, And many other achievements too, a Lifetime Achievement Award for Women in Business. Um, And now I know you as an an executive coach for the Preston Associates, which is one of the most prestigious executive coaching companies, not only in the UK, but worldwide now. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. That was... It is. It's a lovely organisation to be part of. I'm surrounded by very talented, diverse, mostly business people who have trained as executive coaches. And I've been doing that now for about 10, nearly 11 years. Wonderful. Thank you. So I'm really interested in your story, your journey from clinical psychologist working in the NHS to exec coach jetting around the world, coaching senior boards and teams in global organisations. It is. It's a bit bonkers, really. <laughs> I, I I, I'm still stuck on the uh, dancing in the moment and the desert island is. It was funny, as you were saying it, I was thinking of dancing in the dark, Bruce Springsteen. Oh, yes. Probably. I remember going to that concert years and years ago when I was starting off my career, and that's... So I left university and trained to be a consult. Well, I, I was a clinical psychologist originally. Yeah. Which, uh, for those people who may not be familiar with that, that's the NHS qualification for people working mainly with sort of anxiety and depression and that side of, of life, sort of more mental health side. But within a couple of years, I decided to transfer over into what's called health psychology. Okay. Because I think I realised quite soon I wanted to work with people who were just finding themselves uh, facing quite important or serious health conditions. That, that, 
felt important. So the idea of, I suppose, over the years I've been very interested in resilience and you know how people can be helped to be resilient and uh, I guess my definition of that is around it doesn't really matter what happens to you in life what actually matters is your attitude to those events and I think that came from having the opportunity really to work with people who've been through really tough and demanding situations mm-hmm. and you could see how some people, their mindset and the way they approached it was actually very different. They could go through the same events to two people and one would kind of manage to navigate their way through to uh, an easier and better place than others. And so I became very interested in what we could do if we were kind of professionals, if you like, working in that field to help um, bolster people and... Uh, cope with big stuff that was happening and yeah. that's how I found myself in the sort of first main career for me which was working in palliative care and again if people aren't familiar with that term I suppose around the late 80s early 90s people wanted to move away from the term terminal care mm. uh, because people were living with life-threatening illness and, and the concept was to live until the moment that you live no more. Yes. And I just loved that, that yes. approach. And so, interestingly, as a very young person coming through, starting my career, I listened to many, many people who were talking about um, the vibrancy of their lives, knowing that they didn't have very much longer to live. And that, I think, really shaped me as an individual and just gave me such um, insights into the stuff that people find important. When you talk to people who are literally at that place in their life where everything has been stripped back and they're thinking about um, leaving the world, you see much more clearly, I think, the things that are important and sort of accelerating on nearly 30 years and now talking to people who are on you know, very prestigious, ambitious career journeys. I'm lucky enough to coach people who are very talented and naturally, therefore, successful. I think that early beginnings in palliative care almost helps me to ask sometimes quite pertinent questions to people so that they actually do get to where they want to be um, and really think about what's motivating them. Yeah. Um, Fascinating. Thank you. I uh, thank you. That's just there are some beautiful threads there that I would like to pick up mm-hmm. in terms of the sort of practical application of some of those things. So, you you talked so um, interestingly about resilience and and about noticing those people who coped with some terrible life events or life threatening illnesses with with. Um, you know, strength and determination and a, and a positive attitude and others who didn't. So the, what was in my mind was, could, can you, did you have a chance, I'm sure you did, to try to deconstruct what were the different factors that led some people to be more resilient than others? I think maybe what I learned was just the importance of mindset and that that was something that could be shaped. So yes, there were those amazing individuals that just seemed to naturally have 
a very incredibly useful and positive mindset. But I think what I learned fairly early on is that you could really help people. And this is why I think I didn't get to calling it coaching until I met with Tom Preston and, and joined the Preston Associates. But I think I've probably been a natural coach all my life. Yeah. Because I do, I do believe that um, I did my leadership purpose uh, a little while ago. Kim and it came out as compelled so yes yes driven purpose but compelled to build bolster and create and I do love building organizations but that will bolster I've never used before you know like often people use the word caring or but I, I love this idea of bolstering oh me too you know? yeah and, it has more energy to it doesn't yeah. it yeah and the idea that Coaching is a vehicle to actually help people bolster their mindsets and really think about things in a, a different way, you know, creating space around fixed ideas, that kind of growth mm. mindset. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think it's this sense that another lovely phrase that uh, a colleague here taught me was, uh, I, I'm, I'm a fairly natural uh, I think in saboteur's terms, you'd call it stickler or perfectionist, so I have to watch that one quite a bit. <laughs> and he was telling me this sort of line from a Leonard Cohen song, which is, you know, everything is cracked. You know, forget your perfect offering because everything is cracked, but that's how the light gets in. And this sense that we don't live in a perfect world. You know, things, there are challenges. You see this all the time in business when we're coaching people. You know, they'll get one thing sorted and then suddenly there's a new transformation or there's a disruption in the industry that they need to kind of think about in a more creative way. And I think coaching is a very, very creative profession. I love this concept of having a thinking partnership with people and out of that partnership evolving a kind of sense of energy about how you can get breakthroughs mm-hmm. in situations and you never quite know when you're coaching you never know what people are going to bring in um into the room you might think oh we're going to continue on this thread and then there'll be something else that's very relevant yeah it's i, I do feel with the people i work with now i'm grateful actually for the fact that we we very much can work within a understanding the person you know the, yes the role they're in yeah you know what's critical about that role and the performance and the system and how that sits but I, I think really as well as all of that getting to know them as a person and what's important in their life yeah. often sometimes the three sort of fairly unusual pillars of my different careers do thread together I was thinking about somebody um, not so long ago who Uh, came to see me when his wife was very seriously ill and he had three young children. So that very much, I suppose, reminded me of that earlier work that I used to do around palliative care. And he was very clear in his coaching goal that he wanted to, you know, just make sure that he was um, empowered as a father. He'd he'd been doing a very big, busy, global role. Mm -hmm. So he'd he'd been travelling a lot. So... We, we went on a journey together, which also included at some point going back to work and returning to work and taking on a, an amazingly big account for the business. Um, and I particularly loved that, really, because I could see how these three very disparate, unusual careers, you know, one around children, one around um, healthcare, and, and, and then more recently about performance in business, 
they actually can strangely fit together because we're all human beings. Uh, absolutely, not so strangely, not really. So strangely. Not so strangely. Um, one of the developments in coaching since its appearance in, in the world some 30 years ago um, that, that delights me is that I think there is a general acceptance now that we cannot not work with the whole person in front of us. The idea of separating work and life is so artificial. Mm. Um, and what, what skills and experiences you can bring to that with your, with, with your three pillars. Um, I, I'm also really interested in understanding how you think coaches can be more equipped to have conversations around loss and bereavement? That's a very interesting question. I think if I can just share with you or try to share with you, Kim, a model which made a lot of sense to me years ago. And I came to call it message in a bottle. <laughs> okay. so, um, and the person who initially helped me understand it was a, a much older lady. I met her in a a nursing home and I was talking, she had a picture up of uh, what looked like quite a young uh, woman and I, and she was in her, I think she was 90 and this young woman looked about uh, in her late 20s and I said to her, oh who is that? And she said, that's my daughter and she died when she was uh, a young woman and I said, and she said to me, you know, lots of people say to me, you know, are you over it? She said, the thing is, Julie, you never get over it. Uh. And I remember just sketching in front of her this little diagram. And I said, is it a bit like this? And I, I drew these three bottles that were the same size. And in the first bottle, I, I kind of filled it all in. I said, it, when somebody dies, it's almost like your world is taken over. It's like the bottle is all filled up with your grief. And then as time moves on, after about six months, the grief gets a bit smaller. So the, you know, the bottle is still the same size, but the grief is a bit smaller. And then after you know, maybe a year, people say to you things like, um, are you over it? And I said, but you know, sometimes that doesn't feel right. It just doesn't feel like that's the journey. And so I then drew for her this much bigger bottle, but created the same sort of size grief that was in the early days. And, and I said, maybe it's not so much about the grief getting smaller, but somehow you growing around your grief and, and creating less suffocation and that yeah. you sort of somehow grow through grief. So to answer your question, Kim, is that I think coaches can be helped, uh, can help their coaches by understanding, doing a sort of audit of the things that have shaped them and sometimes they're not necessarily profound losses. You know, they can be um, things that maybe they've never paid attention to. I was coaching someone yesterday who's a supremely successful lawyer uh, who has got an extraordinary high level of hypervigilance. Mm. And you might think, well, that's great for a lawyer to be quite hypervigilant. Sure, it goes with the job description. <laughs> it probably <laughs> is, but yeah, this is causing quite a lot of anxiety, you know, and her appetite for risk is getting in the way of some of the things they need to do. And I said, you know, maybe we should just try and understand a little bit where this hypervigilance, where this kind of anxiousness comes from. 
And we talked about it and I did a family tree and she told me about her family and there was nothing very obvious there, you know, very supportive environment, um, not particularly pressurised, even though she did have a very, very academic father. But when we kind of drilled down a bit, she said, you know, I, I said, just tell me about your school days. And it turned out, I won't go into lots of detail, but years five and six were not great. Mm. And they were not great because of how she had to be quite vigilant and look out for some people who were being particularly nasty. Mm. She said, I've never really thought about that before. But, you know, I said, you know, that's a pretty important kind of turning point in your development when we know lots of values and stuff like that are laid down. And so we just unpicked it. And I said, you know, maybe we can kind of let go of some of that now. Maybe, maybe you don't need to be so hypervigilant anymore. And that was just a nice entry into just linking up in a light way things from the past yeah. that were significant. It's not about therapy. This isn't about peeling back layers of onions to do therapy. It's just simply making connections. You know, and I remember doing the same with somebody whose father had died very suddenly when he, he was a younger man. And, you know, he, he was getting quite a lot of feedback about how he was a bit of a micromanager. And he said, gosh, I want to be in control of the world. And I learned that day that I couldn't be. Mm-hmm. But I don't need to still be like that now. I can let Wonderful. go of some of that. Yeah. So I think it's, it really is, we need to be clear that we're not doing therapy here. This is about driving performance, in, especially in a company... You know, ours is all about driving performance and helping people to really optimise themselves as sort of agile leaders in, in this new disrupted landscape yes. that we're all navigating. Um, but I, I think as well as looking forward, I think sometimes in order to let go of the past, you, you do have to sometimes make peace with it a bit. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think you put that really, really beautifully. And as you were speaking, I was thinking, I I also am um, trained in grief work and I've um, been trained in a particular programme. The starting point of which I think is really useful because um, we are encouraged to look at our own experiences of loss throughout our lives. Um, really from the perspective of gaining understanding around the messages we received from the world at large about loss. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are some classic messages that we've maybe all had if we've been upset. And we're not just talking about bereavement, the loss of a loved one. We can be talking about the loss of uh, a country, a home, uh, a job, yeah. a change of circumstances, an aspect of our health. So, um, But the messages that we tend to get classically are around things like, um, uh, not, there are plenty more fish in the sea, you know, things will get better. Um, don't... don't you know, keep busy, or don't cry, don't upset yourself. And, and however we have uh, received those messages, we probably also internalised them a bit. Mm. And then when we experience a loss, which is a valid feeling, we will give ourselves those messages and beat ourselves up in exactly the same way, beating ourselves with the kind of stick that we've been beaten with. And I, I was thinking as you were speaking it's almost a prerequisite for all coaches to think about their feelings about loss 
Because then when they encounter people who are experiencing loss, they will approach it with fresh eyes and empathy and without those messages that they perhaps have internalised over the years. I think you're spot on, Kim, and I think this is why I really admire the work you're doing with supervision of coaches, because sometimes it's it's difficult to know exactly when to do that kind of work, because when you're training to be a coach for the first time, you really are a bit dancing in the dark, you know, you're yeah. trying to grapple with lots of different tools and models and approaches and, you know, so you're very much what I would call the novice practitioner. Yeah. And then if you're lucky, you get some work and you, you become more the experienced practitioner. Yeah. And then over, for me, it was definitely five years of doing executive coaching. I think you then move more into what I would call the intuitive practitioner. And that, once you're in that stage and you've been doing quite a lot of coaching and you're really able to both think about very much the coaching in front of you, but also about yourself and continue, you know, I really do think that continuing to do self-development is a very important part of being a coach. But I, I just think sometimes what supervision is doing, good quality supervision, like you provide at Barefoot, is actually helping people to deal with, as a coach, to deal with the unconscious mm-hmm. aspect of what a coaching may bring up in you. Mm. And that, that's why I think it's quite important to make sure that you continue to do that kind of um, development work as a coach after you're getting the experience. It's quite difficult to do that right at the beginning. Yeah. You should do some of it, yeah. be aware of it. But there's no replacement for good quality supervision as you really get into Absolutely. Work. Wonderful, yeah. wonderful reminder, wonderful plug. Thank you. Uh, and also, you're quite right, you know, to suddenly uh, in a coach training programme to start um, confronting issues around loss could just be too much too soon. But as your coaching practice grows, I think it's essential to look at it. It's really inter- It's been a very interesting journey for me, combining sort of starting off as a clinical psychologist. So you know, having that kind of um, I don't know, all sorts of labels get tagged to that kind of stuff. Woo woo, tree hugging, mm-hmm. you know, the counselling, all that kind of space. So I was very much that was my identity, I suppose. And then coming into what for us, you know, we work with typically fairly senior people. Yeah. Um, it's all about business performance. So to really try and work out how those two worlds can legitimately connect together does take a while. Yeah. You know, but what I'm clear about is that executive coaching is not about therapy. It's not about... And yet there are aspects of that training that are inordinately helpful in, in what we're doing as executive coaches. I agree. I agree. I'm really interested to uh, understand something. I work with, I train lots of coaches, as you know, and then I see them progress from our coach training program and start businesses. Mm. And many of them have come from completely different careers. They may have been in the NHS, they may have been in education or you know, any, anything else. And suddenly they find themselves working with senior business people, boards, um, and many experience a, a degree of imposter syndrome then. I'm just wondering if you had that 
feeling as you moved from the NHS and though, as you said, you know, slightly perceived woo-woo world you'd lived in and found yourself working at this international level with senior business people? Yeah, I think the answer to that is... is <laughs> I'm not sure if I would have called it imposter syndrome. I, I certainly was incredibly... Um, unaware of some of the the basics around how big multinationals worked or you know how a sort of magic circle law firm would operate all the dynamics and the subtleties and I was listening to what everybody was saying which is that you don't really need to know that Julie you know you need to just be able to ask the right questions the person in front of you knows all the answers do I think that I have more credibility 11 years on understanding those systems I, I certainly feel like I do yeah I don't you know it's very difficult to be completely objective I feel more comfortable now understanding how financial and banking systems work I feel more comfortable understanding the machinations of a family office you know when we're coaching for example wealthy families who are trying to navigate their wealth in a healthy way I, it, it does feel more familiar to me those environments now so I but I think the thing that I would say to any coach starting off is try to hold most closely the concept of curiosity I, th I think the if you if you really can feel curious about the person in front of you you know that person as a person the role they're doing, what gives them energy, what drains their energy, what's critical about the role and still drains their energy, you know, um, and, and really understand the systems in which they work, how they show up, not just in the work environment, but also how they're showing up out beyond work, in friendships or family, and that, that sense of curiosity that everybody and every situation is completely bespoke. If you stay in that space, then I think you're more likely to be guided by your coachee to understand the environment in which they work. Um, and I think that helps to um, balance imposter syndrome. Mm. I think we all have an element of mm. imposter syndrome. I mean, that's one of the things that I find quite... I don't know what the adjective is, Kim, but I've been doing quite a lot of EQ assessments mm -hmm. uh, as part of my coaching. I tend to offer that as an opportunity to people just to sort of get a lens on the various aspects of EQ. And one of the things that it measures is self-esteem. And I am really struck by how many very, very successful people, you know, by any standards and any criteria, rate themselves as having very low EQ. Mm -hmm. And um, and I kind of think, what's that about? You know, so we all... Imposter syndrome is alive and kicking, not just in coaches, but in Everywhere. very senior, successful yeah. people. Yeah. It's almost... It's there all the time. Yeah, it sure is. I often say to um, new coaches that I would... I would love it if there could be a fly on the wall of some of my coaching sessions with senior successful people and realise that exactly that, we're mm. not alone. No. We all, we're all human beings, as we said. We all yeah. have self-doubt. We all worry that we're doing our best or 
yeah, I'm wanting to please people. So we're all dancing in the dark. We're all dancing in the dark. Although, although we've come to the end of our now we're dancing podcast. in the moment. We're dancing <laughs> in the moment, but also I wanted to say I feel like we've been dancing in the light with yes. you today here. Oh, thank you. I feel like you've offered such wisdom and enlightenment about the marriage of psychology and coaching and your your history and your experience and what it means to actually work with curiosity with human beings whoever they are and whatever stage of their life they're at well so thank, thank you and thank you you trained me we we didn't say i did uh, barefoot as i say it was about 11 years ago now yeah. thoroughly enjoyed it and it is i love that concept of the light everything's cracked so that's how the light gets in and coaching is such a wonderful vehicle and gift for people to figure out their own solutions julie stokes thank you again it's been wonderful thank you